Founders Field Report podcast, where we have unabashedly honest conversations with the founders and innovators who are building the next generation of new ventures across a range of industries. The podcast is hosted at the Yale School of Management, and I'm Jennifer McFadden, Associate Director of Entrepreneurial Programs at the school. Welcome to the show. Okay, today we have Rosie Atkins, who is the VP of Product at Upserve. Upserve, which was originally known as Swipely, is a software and mobile point-of-sale provider that offers a cloud-based restaurant management platform to restaurant owners across the United States. The company's software gives restaurants everything they need to know in a single place with real-time guidance based on sales and trend data. The software integrates with point-of-sale systems and terminals, and it enables restaurateurs to interact with customer spending, social media, and other data. Um, Upserve currently serves 8,000 restaurants in the United States and represents and processes uh, $8 billion in transactions annually. Uh, the platform is also adding 200 to 250 new restaurants per month on average. Uh, the company has raised over $40 million in VC funding um, from firms like Index Ventures, First Round Capital, and Greylock. In May, they acquired Groupon's point of sale arm, Breadcrumb, and that is where Rosie comes in. So Rosie, first it would be great if you kind of backed up and gave us a little bit of your background, you know, from college on and what got you from point A to point here. Sure. I'm going to start before college. Great. Uh, my family was in the restaurant business on Nantucket, and so I've been working in restaurants since I was about six years old. Uh, my first job in restaurants was washing produce and chalkboards, where we had our menus. So uh, it's really fun to be here many, many, many years later and still be in it. Um, I do not have a background in tech. Um, in my education, I studied English, um, and we love liberal arts grads <laughs> here at Yale <laughs> University. Uh, Yale didn't let me in, so just <laughs> they didn't FYI, let me in either. still a little bit of. Um, here I am. How do you like me now? So, anyway, <laughs> um, in college, uh, my junior year, I took my first CS class and and found it interesting. I studied Fortran, which is as dead a language as there is in the world. Um, but it, it sparked something and an interest in technology and, um, and how mathematics could be applied. Um, and even though I was an English major, I also believe in math. So that's, there's that. Um, I started my first sort of real job uh, working at Videosmith for Marshall Smith, who was an entrepreneur uh, who started the paperback booksmith chain, which really changed how people sell books. Um, and going to work for him was a lucky stroke. Um, I went just as desktop publishing was starting to be a thing, and Marshall invested in a Mac Plus and gave me the opportunity to be the person who made signs and catalogs. Um, I had been managing one of his stores, which is a humbling job uh, in retail, and uh, making that, that change into doing that and, and parlaying that into being in charge of merchandising and purchasing and advertising um, was really the opportunity um, to, to start building a career professionally and start exploring it. Um, and the catalyst of it was really tech. Um, it really was like that Mac and unlocking the possibility of how that can help a business be more profitable. Uh, so it was very interesting being the only computer user in an office in 1986, 1987, um, and, and watching people start to understand what it was that we could do with those. Um, 
in the early 90s, my husband was going to grad school in San Francisco, so we moved out there, and I left Video Smith temporarily, as it would turn out, um, and got a job as an administrative assistant at Go Corporation, which was uh, one of Silicon Valley's first venture-funded startups, and it was just jam-packed with talent, um, and we had a lot of variables in building that business, looking back on it. Um, the foundation of the business was building an operating system for tablet computers, um, but the business also was working with manufacturers to build tablet computers and software developers to build software that would run on top of them. And when you have that many tracks trying to come together to launch a new kind of thing and a new way of doing business, uh, it's a lot of risk, and that risk uh, did bring Go Corporation to an end. But what was inspiring about it was what happened after. Um, there was a lot of naysaying in Silicon Valley about the money the company had burned, but the talented people there were really resilient. And the leaders went on to companies like Apple and Google and did really amazing things with what they had learned with Go Corporation. And I think that um, Netscape was another company that came out of that. And, and when you look at what they were able to take away from that failure, uh, which was humiliating for the leaders um, at the time, was a vision of how you could use technology differently to drive business. And it was no longer selling software, and it was no longer creating OEM networks um, and, and having hardware drive product. It was building products that people wanted to use. And when I think about you know, Bill Campbell, who was at Go, going to Apple. And it wasn't too long after that that the iPod came out, which was the first touch system that really came out at scale. It's not too far from the vision that we had at Go. And, and when you reflect on that and you think about incrementality and in product, he took a really, really big vision and took a really fundamental piece of it, a handheld device that you don't need a keyboard for, and made something it's really inspiring to see. And you see the evolution of like the Apple ecosystem, which is the world I operate in now, um, started from a very small idea of what a technology, technological device could be. And now it's our whole world. So um, that was my start in tech and went back to Videosmith um, after GoCorp collapsed uh, and learned how to run that business, Marshall Smith gave me the keys to the kingdom and I was executive VP there for a number of years um, and then got the itch to come back to Silicon Valley um, and we uh, started a little company called real.com um, renting and selling videos on the internet <laughs> um, and Stuart Scorman who was the founder of it called me one day in Boston as I was complaining about the coming snow and winter and he said why don't you come back I think that we can write a business plan and raise 10 million dollars which seemed dazzling to me and it was at the time an awful lot of money this was 1996 um, and we wrote the business plan and pitched CMGI which was one of uh, the the big venture firms at the time and uh, Dave Weatherall who was the head of that firm liked the idea and saw where we were going with it and he liked that we had a lot of expertise in the video industry and he challenged us to get him a VHS copy of Yellow Submarine and I called everyone this I knew. This is the 90s, folks, <laughs> the 90s. 
this is, is a big deal just so we're all but clear. it's it's one of those things that you have to be prepared when like for an unusual response when you're doing your pitch and he really wanted to see yellow submarine on vhs and i found a copy and we got it in fedex and it was to him the next day and two days later we got our money and i'm not saying that yellow submarine did it but I think if we hadn't been able to deliver like that, that it may have indicated to him that we didn't know something about the video industry because he had been looking for that on VHS for a long time. This may date me, but I actually remember watching Yellow Submarine <laughs> with my sister on VHS in the in the 90s. So. Well, it became very rare after a while because there was something with Peter Max's estate that made it go out of print and disappear. Huh. Interesting. So, uh, yeah, and, and you know, the, the lesson from, from that experience really was like, have a good business plan, but know something about the business you're going to go into. And that's where um, CMGI, and then they evolved into At Ventures, um, put their trust in us because they could see we knew how to operate that business. Um, we had no idea what we didn't know about technology. Um, and if we had, uh, you know, the me now at my age, I would have found that very daunting. Then, you know, it was sort of balls to the wall, like, we're going to make this happen. Um, and, and we did. But our first iteration of the product, um, some of the things we found out was that you can't have curved lines on the Internet. We had a whole beautiful design that was based on ovals, and they became squares. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we learned some, some valuable lessons about intellectual property and, and trademark laws. Um, we learned how hard it was to capture a credit card securely on the internet. Um, and, and we, and we've mastered all of those things and we started transacting. Um, we didn't even really have a way to capture a credit card payment. We were able to capture the credit card number and then decrypt it and punch it into a machine and then ship things. <laughs> seem terribly secure i know <laughs> i know and then we would destroy it, it was crazy but you know you do what you have to do yeah. and and very quickly after that we were able to process it because it would have prevented us from scaling um in that business there was a lot i learned about um networking and and who you know and uh one of one of the people that we knew um both Stuart and i from the video industry was a guy named mark waddles who had started hollywood video and Mark was very interested in technology. And he um, liked the vision of renting and selling videos on the internet. And he had this idea that if he could capture the traffic in his stores to start to shape some of that to the internet, he could drive down labor costs, he might be able to sell more, um, he could reach broader audiences. Um, and he was having these conversations with us and then one day he came in and said he wanted to buy our company for a hundred million dollars and it was uh, the end of 1999 and Good we timing. said yes for those of, uh, <laughs> those of you who did not live through those days yeah um and and uh, it was a hard decision to make yeah. i mean we we were starting to see predictable revenue we were starting to get our arms around our operating costs um there was a lot of discussion about whether to say yes or no. Um, and, and in the end, I'm glad we said yes because the timing of it was pretty good because uh, there weren't very many IPOs after that moment until 1997. So, <laughs> I mean, until 2009, sorry. Um, uh, it was a long time before uh, we had the Wild West again in tech. So it was, it was a really interesting thing. But uh, Jeff Jordan, who um, was the CFO at the time of Hollywood Video, led um, 
the charge for Hollywood when they did the buyout and actually came on board as our president at Real.com for a while, and I got to work side by side with him. Yes. He went on to become the CEO of Open Table, gave me a job there a few years later, uh, and there I was back in the restaurant world where I started. Um, and Open Table at the time uh, was in the early stages of transforming from a sales and marketing oriented company, which was right. They built a really powerful network of restaurants and diners um, into a technology and product driven company. So it was great timing for me as a product person to be able to join a company that was really rethinking things like mobile and how do you use mobile apps to drive consumer behavior, analytics, what can you deliver to make your product stickier for restaurants? Because what the company was finding was that with this powerful network of restaurants, restaurants now wanted to say, who are these diners? Like, what are their behaviors? Um, what am I getting for my money? Um, and, and being able to start to build out Open Table as a brand for consumers to start to really shape that behavior as well as a brand for restaurants was a really uh, challenging and really great thing to do. During that time, we did a lot of international acquisition, um, being able to master international markets and, and localize products and build platforms that could do that um, were some of the really big challenges we had. And what was the hardest part of that? If you can give me one particular story. Understanding that different cultures have very, very, very different expectations around what it means to go to a restaurant. Um, restaurants in Germany operate very differently than restaurants in London. Restaurants in London operate very differently than restaurants in New York. And when you get to Japan, that's a whole different animal too. Um, those were our big markets. We were also getting a foothold in Mexico. Uh, Mexico City is a great restaurant city. Uh, and, and that was another animal. We had to have a bilingual site there, not just one in Spanish. Um, I could do German, but doing one that was uh, in Spanish and English was a really big difficult project and the day that we finished that and, and launched it it was a very happy day we learned a lot the hard way there um you know london even the highest end restaurants have offers and people make decisions about where they're going to go based on offers and those offers can be special menus for open table bookers they can be discounts on particular nights of the week and it was surprising to me, like as a product lead, when I went over there, I'm like, oh, we're not going to do offers. That, that's silly. And the salespeople were like, uh, come and talk to a few restaurants and you tell me it's silly because it's not. It really does drive behavior. And so yeah. we had to figure out how to build an offer engine that was tied into availability. Yeah. Um, that was another hard lesson to learn. But it's it's a good lesson to learn because you have to then drop your assumptions about what you think you know. Um, not just as an American product person, but as a product person. Um, and how do, you, how do you validate what you assume to be true? Um, salespeople and customers are a great way to do that. And it's easy to ignore them, um, but you do so at your peril. So that, that was the biggest thing there. Yeah. So then jump from open table to breadcrumb. So I arrived at breadcrumb in September of 2014. Um, I went there uh, for a couple of reasons. Um, I was really interested in iOS as an enterprise platform. Um, and I also really admired Seth Harris, who was the founder of Breadcrumb, who was still working with Groupon at the time. He was a Yale College grad. 
and who went to Yale. Yes. <laughs> um, and he, you know, through our conversations, he said, you know, this is the right product for you and you're right for this product. And the problems that we were trying to solve at the time were big, meaty problems like how do you have an enterprise application that is a cloud app that's mission critical and can continue operating when the internet connection goes down. And that can happen because somebody unplugs a router to plug in a microwave oven or somebody moves the router to behind the refrigerator. There's a million reasons that this can happen. Uh, and figuring that out um, and what we had to do with it and what we didn't have to do with it was a really, really hard problem to solve. So I went saying, I want something hard and immediately got thrown <laughs> into the hardest thing. Um, and it, it was a nice product to work on too because it was new to restaurants that they could have a product that was attractive, that was easy to use, and that wasn't too expensive. Uh, point of sale is a an industry that is an old industry and that has had pricing that is not commensurate with what has been delivered with the product. So restaurants welcomed us suspiciously. Um, and we have a lot, we had a lot to prove around cloud and what that meant and what you had to do to have a cloud product. We still have restaurants that have a poor internet connection and we say, we can't launch you until this incoming pipe from Comcast or whomever gets fixed. Um, and they don't, want to fix that they're like can't you just operate my legacy system does and it's hard to change that yeah so give me a sense of to that end when you were launching breadcrumb you're looking at two big existing players micros and aloha how did you approach product decisions in the early stages to differentiate yourself from them and mm -hmm. then um how did you just think through like we can actually do this we know that we can do this <laughs> Ah, it's like an up at night thing still. Um, I think that the point of differentiation was usability at the core. And Seth understood that. That's why he started this company. Yeah. Um, those products are very hard to use. You know, they, they practically have function keys and they have lots of colors and not a lot of great visual cues. Um, and so the design was a really foundational principle. I still have customers asking me, can I have a red button here? I'm like, no. <laughs> we have a disciplined palette with our product, and there's a good reason for it. Um, that set us apart, certainly price. Yeah. Um, those legacy players have a, have a big price. But we also approached it from who is using it and what are they trying to accomplish. And when you think about the server during a busy service in a restaurant, they they should not have to spend much time at all to get that order to the kitchen, to get that credit card processed. And we pay a lot of attention to how many buttons you have to push. Those decisions still drive what we're doing today. Yep. Today's the day we're launching our EMV solution. Nice. And we were literally going through and saying, one less button to punch. When we were getting our certification on it, our certifying partner uh, was saying, no, 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 you need to put a are you sure button here. And I'm saying, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> they are sure. You have not, in fact, <laughs> waited tables before. <laughs> yeah, and, and for me, it really is about honoring that service. And then you start infusing that with value. Yeah. If you're ramping down the time spent standing there at the point of sale, you're increasing the time spent selling on the floor. You're increasing CSAT. You're increasing your ability to turn tables more quickly. Um, and then you start looking for other opportunities for the product with that as the central thesis. So what else can we do to help deliver better service? 
Um, we certainly have really ambitious plans around that, around knowing the customer. Um, the minute you begin waiting on them, imagine like you know, you're know you using a credit card and we swipe it to open your tab and we're able to see this is your third visit. Um, that's very powerful. We're able to see that you prefer this Pinot Noir and not this one, or last time you were here you were curious about this particular dish. Um, to be able to deliver that the minute a server is going to a table is incredible. And how do you measure some of that from a, just a nitty-gritty perspective and a product perspective, and then use that to kind of sell the product to other restaurants? So what, what metrics are you looking at when you're evaluating a product? Uh, you look at, or we, we look at um, engagement. So I had a feature that I thought was just going to be like the killer feature, and it was batch on demand. Um, restaurants have long trading days, and credit card companies have cutoff times, and that cutoff time might be 11. But if you're open until 1 in the morning and you don't batch out your payments, you lose another day before you get your money. And if it's a Thursday, you're not getting your money till Monday. Yeah. So I thought, oh, the killer feature is going to be batch on demand, and somebody can throw up their batch at like 10.30 at night, and then we'll just take whatever's left and put it into the next day's batch. And nobody uses that feature. It's such a disappointment. <laughs> it was really hard to build, and and I didn't do enough research around uh, when my money comes in as a pain point. And if I had, I would have noticed that sometimes when banks have a hard time settling uh, payments, it can be several days before a restaurant notices that their money isn't there. Uh, but I didn't pay close enough attention. I didn't validate that properly. Um, what do we look at? I watch people using my product all the time. And I watch what happens to it in service. And then uh, we have a lot of back-end tools. Um, and watching people use that and watching where they struggle. Um, you know, right now we have a lot of opportunity in how you manage your menu um, as, as a menu administrator. Yeah. Uh, it's very, very usable for a server. It's very, very hard for the person who has to build out the menu. Um, we have a lot of opportunity around... Um, delivering more intelligence around who the customer is and what they're doing um, and helping you connect the dots to service or to what happened in the restaurant that night or to a marketing spend you may have made. Um, so those are the things that when I'm watching people uh, using it and then they dead end and they say, but how do I get this into my email marketing machine? And I'm like, we don't have that hook yet. And then I look at the data and I see there are a lot of people who dead end at that point. Um, there's small things I can do about it and big things I can say, oh, we can make it easier to export before we put a hook into you know, a CRM uh, capability. So you know, it's, it, it is about sort of observation, data, opportunity, and then opportunity cost. Whenever you're building something, you're not building something else. Right. Um, the batch thing was terrible opportunity cost. I could have been building some other more valuable features. Um, swiping to to start a tab yep. is something that makes so much sense, not just because it's faster, but because it helps you deliver service. Like that one took me a long time to understand why that was important, yep. probably too long. So it's, you know, making those decisions as a product leader is all, always a humbling experience too. Yeah, so I'm curious a little bit about the management side of that and and how you communicate that with your team 
and how you kind of say, all right, well, I made this decision. It was perhaps not the best decision. Um, how kind of open are you in that communication and admission of a small failure? <laughs> <laughs> and large ones. I, I'm really open about it. Yeah. Um, I think that it's important to create a space where we can celebrate um, our victories and we can learn from our failures. And, and you have to be able to take risks it's how you choose which risks you take um, that will help you succeed or not. Um, not taking a risk because something is hard or because you might fail is a really bad reason to not take a risk. Um, taking a risk without understanding what it is you're trying to accomplish or what the opportunity is is a dumb reason to take a risk. So you have to balance it. And, you know, I, I was talking to a candidate uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he said, I always make room on my product teams uh, to talk about the crazy things. And then I'll go home and start triaging them and start to say, do we have something here? And it's very hard to do that, when you're, especially when you're moving and you're growing your business, um, to be like, no, 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 don't talk about that, that crazy thing because we have to keep our eyes on the prize and we have to do this and then this and then this. You have to make room in the roadmap to explore that crazy thing. But exploring it can mean making small bets. Um, I really love what Apple's doing with notifications. I really love some of the chat apps because you can make small bets and you can start to understand what people are going to do with them and then build upon it or abandon ship without it being a big deal and a big drag. So from the team perspective, you're looking at your roadmap, you're kind of, you've got your strategy for the next, how are you mapping it out? Three months, six months? Uh, three to six. How are those ideas being prioritized? I'm assuming you use Agile to some degree um, mm -hmm. or to a large degree. If you could go through a little bit on the nitty gritty on sure. the process side of things, that would be great. We're, we are an Agile Scrum house. Um, we have a complex ecosystem as a platform. We have a mobile app um, that is an iOS mobile app. We have the point of sale, which is an iOS client uh, app. We have a services layer that's a very complicated services layer that runs everything from our authentication service to our message bus to um, understanding who a customer is um, and reporting. Um, and then we have our payment processing and analytics platform as well. And they're all big and complicated and they all need to talk to each other yeah. all the time. And so I have to be very careful about balancing delivery to our customers on features and capabilities and building foundational capabilities. Um, and we're at a point now where we're at another inflection point in our growth. Um, so we have to start looking at, like, are we prepared to onboard another X thousand of customers in the next quarter? Are we prepared to support Saturday nights? Um, I was watching this Saturday night because we had just launched a new service and it was wavering a little bit and I'm like, uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> and it was one-eighth of one-twentieth of our customers were on this new service and it started to flicker a little bit. And, and so, you know, you have, to, you have to be smart about where you're making those investments and how you're rolling them out. Um, but there are things that, that we know we need to have. Um, you know, we need to have sort of canonical notions of certain KPIs like labor and like sales. 
um, instead of just ingesting them and distributing that data broadly. We have to start building that as a foundational service. We have to be very efficient with how we're using Amazon. Um, it's really easy to run up a big bill when you're in growth mode with Amazon. <laughs> um, it's a little bit harder to take advantage of the elasticity that they offer. Um, so we have to invest a lot in that. And that isn't a feature and no customer is asking us for that. But it's really, really important to our growth. Um, when we're looking at what to build for customers versus what not to build, um, I think about three buckets. I think about what's going to drive revenue, um, what is going to retain and delight our customers, and then what's going to set us apart. Um, and the stuff that's going to set us apart is the stuff that's easiest to throw under the bus when you get in the weeds with your development and the discipline of sticking with those and, and making sure that you're validating those things incrementally is really hard. Um, if all we wanted to do was deliver features that customers requested, um, we would have a big, ugly platform that was <laughs> as hard to use as the legacy players yeah. that we're trying to disrupt. Yeah. So. Uh, we don't build everything that customers want. I have a lot of conversations with customers um, who are requesting features like that to find out what it is you're trying to accomplish with those features. And a lot of times customers request something using a language or using analogies that they're used to having because they have a legacy system or they have um, a way that they operate. But when you start to get into what it is that the need is downstream for driving revenue or driving profitability or making accounting simpler or making recruiting simpler, you can offer up a different type of solution that they haven't thought of. Uh, understanding where that request came from instead of just saying, we're not building that, is very, very important. Yeah. Um, and our roadmap is very much driven. We take in ideas. We have this great plug-in in Salesforce that any sales objection, any request, any whisper that somebody wants something, it goes into the ideas board and we look at it constantly and we try to understand the kernel of that idea. And if I don't really get why somebody would want something, I'll reach out to the customer. Yep. It's always like amazing to me that customers go, wait, somebody told you I wanted that? I'm like, that's who we are. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I think that even, even that conversation sometimes uh, goes a long way toward having customers understand how much we care about having them as customers. I may not build that red button for you in my point of sale system, but I really care about why you think you need it. Yeah, that's great. So we're coming a little bit to the end of this, but I want to ask a couple of more questions. Um, the first is we have a lot of students here who are interested in moving into product development, product management. Um, we have a couple of classes now that are aimed at trying to prep them for that, but I think one of the things that I've noticed in talking to you both, both now and earlier is that you have this philosophy on learning and picking up skills that you don't know. So I would love to first hear kind of what you look for in product managers, and then second here, you know, you've had this great evolution of a career so far, how you stayed on top of those technologies, how you moved kind of to where things are going instead of sitting back and just enjoying where you are. <laughs> well, I live in San Francisco, so you can't sit back because it just gets more and more expensive. <laughs> so it's really a <laughs> motivating factor. Um, so question one, what do we look for in a product manager? Um, there's, I have a very, very structured way that I hire people, and we worked on it a lot at OpenTable. 
um, we were in a high growth mode and we knew that we had to make the right hires and and it still is sort of a guiding light for me so shout out to Jemmy Tai who uh, got that started um, structured thinking is very important and we spend a lot of time trying to understand can somebody enter into a problem and figure out how to get to a plan from a problem um, cognitive skills um, you know there's there's the infamous Google questions about like how do you move Mount Fuji and things like that the reason those questions are important isn't to find out how clever somebody is it's to find out what their cognitive aptitude is um, and can they think right structured thinking is one thing but like being able to get to that higher level of what do I need to know to solve this is really important um, I look for great writing skills and great storytelling skills. If somebody can't lay out for me a vision, if somebody can't tell me a story, they're not going to be able to tell the story through a product. Um, and so that's that to me. That and goes back to that liberal, my liberal English major <laughs> education. Yeah, but it is it is important. And yeah. and you know my team has to write the support articles for their product. Um, my team has to write a story about what it is they're trying to build before we start to build it. Um, my team has to explain to me what it is that they're doing and why they're making these decisions. And that goes back to great communication skills. Um, you also have to have really, really good analytical skills. Um, you have to know what to measure and how to understand what it is you're measuring. So I look for people who um, might be good at math but not math majors or somebody who tells me that they have an abiding interest in statistics um, if we can talk about Freakonomics for a that, few that hours. That will not be me. <laughs> I, you know, there's a question about uh, probability that's why do most accidents happen within one mile of your home? Somebody who has a good statistical mind can immediately answer that question. Uh, other people can't. So I look for that. I ask that question a lot. Yeah. Um, and then people who are learners. Um, if you are constantly learning and you're humble about what you don't know, you're going to make a really good product manager. I ask people questions about what was the first job you had and what did you learn there that still is useful for you today? Um, I think that that's a really interesting way to understand like what do people take away from it. Yep. Question two, what was it again? Um, how you kind of view lifelong learning and how you've stayed oh. ahead of things. Oh my gosh, well, it goes back to, again, not being you know, embarrassed to not know things. Um, yeah. I constantly have to ask, what is it that I'm looking at? Um, but also not being lazy about it. I uh, was telling your group that I, I keep a notepad on my phone, on my laptop, and I have things I have to find out, and then I go and I find them out. Um, I also, try to find out who's going to deliver a lot of knowledge to me. I think that Marty Kagan, Silicon Valley Product Group, is great. Mark Hurst, who runs um, Creative Good, has a very well-curated newsletter um, who makes us all smarter. Um, Angus Davis, who's the CEO of Upserve, has a weekly newsletter <laughs> that he dumps down everything we need to know. Um, it's, it's, it's great. And, and he's a voracious learner himself, and he really shines a light um, and inspires everybody in the organization to be curious and to start sharing. Um, what I'm starting to see now is people will say, oh, Angus should have this in his newsletter. And they're starting to think that way of yeah. what's interesting to us. And what Angus looks at is 
restaurant trends, service trends, tech trends, and then just general interests like graphing. We always have the graph of the week. <laughs> so, um, Which is interesting because I think that does definitely come from the top, that the culture setting around learning and having kind of the time and the ability and the flexibility to A, be wrong, and B, to have the time to learn new skills yeah, so, and apply yeah. them and not yeah. be afraid to apply them. So One of the things I love about Agile Scrum is the retrospective where you say what went right, what went wrong yeah. um, every week and the what went wrong becomes actionable. Um, I track that assiduously. There was a lead engineer at OpenTable, Chris Core, who's at uh, Salesforce now, and he began every retrospective with what did we talk about last week that went wrong and did we get it right this week? And it's just so powerful to be able to have those conversations and not have people feel bad or icky, you know, when something goes wrong. So yeah, because things always go always. Wrong. <laughs> you're not doing it right if you're doing not doing it wrong. Which brings me to my last question, which is, um, you know, I think part of the point of this podcast is exploring the possibility of failure and having kind of unabashedly honest conversations about small failures or big failures that you've had. So I would be curious kind of if you could back to the what went right, what went wrong. <laughs> we'll start with what went wrong and we'll end on what went right. Kind of biggest failure and um, greatest success. Sure. At, at Open Table, um, we made a very big bet in social. Um, we bet that our diners would want to share their dining experiences in their social settings. Um, and invested a tremendous amount of, of time and resource in building out a couple of apps that sat on top of Facebook. Um, and turned out that diners aren't interested in having their dining and their social settings really integrated. Um, and in hindsight, it would have been very easy to get signal about whether that was a valid approach or not. Um, but at the time, um, everybody was betting on social to be the biggest business driver in the world. Um, we may have been too early. We may have done it wrong. But it, it was by no means a big success. <laughs> I, still, I still get alerts on Facebook like, two new customers joined places I've eaten this week. And I'm like, oh, thanks for the reminder. <laughs> Nothing like those failures. I'm sure, and I'm sure that you. I'm sure that there are people who love that product, who are you yeah. know use it all the time. All ten but of them. There aren't that many. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so now we will end on a positive note. Kind of highlight so far, like most fun you've had. I am the luckiest person. I have fun in every job. Um, I think that you know, we when we finally replatformed Breadcrumb and we knew that we were going to be able to have bulletproof um, service delivered to our customers. We had offline mode down, we had our message bus, and, and we had, you know, just sales started to explode. Um, that day, like, that, that we realized, whoa, we got it right, um, and, and we had, you know, some customers that were very high-end in the market come to us. Um, I thought, you know, we really need to celebrate this, and um, I love New Orleans not just for restaurants, but for fun. Yep. And I, um, 
hired a marching band to come into our awesome. office in San Francisco <laughs> and march us down Bush Street to the Irish Bank for like a few pitchers of beer. That is um, hilarious. And and seeing people like have that as a surprise, people just marched into the office. We handed out hats and said, "Come on, we're marching," um, to celebrate because you you have to pause and you have to look at those moments and what got you there because it's very often trying and upsetting and you just you have to like stop and go like whoa okay we achieved that we just did that and then you get back to work the next day all right well rosie i do want to say um thank you so much for uh being the first and being the guinea pig for the podcast (laughs) uh this was great and i really appreciate it i really appreciate you coming to yale and uh, hearing everything else you're welcome it was a delight (laughs) 